0: We are in Genesis 37, just flying through here. We are starting the Joseph story. Now, Genesis 37, there's all sorts of good stuff for us here. Starts a little differently, though. So, let's turn to Genesis 37. We're going to read the first 11 verses. Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, meaning Jacob, loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheep. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. Thank you for loving us with such a costly love. Lord, as we come to your word, we pray that you would speak to us again by your word and by your spirit, penetrate our pain and strife and struggles with the understanding that you have a far more profound understanding of those struggles than we ever will. For you are the sovereign, ordaining, providentially ruling God who orders all things for your own glory and for our good. Give us the desire and ability to learn from you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, all of us have been hurt at one time or another in some way, in some capacity. We've been hurt by moms, dads, divorces, our own children, friends, coworkers, lots of other ways. And if we hold on to those hurts, they can destroy us. Envy and bitterness begin inside the heart, and like a continual drip, 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 they eat away at us like acid. And bitterness begins when you're hurt, and it's fed by not forgiving the person who hurt you. But not everyone responds by becoming embittered. We've come to the next major section of the book of Genesis, and that's the story of Joseph. And as we look at the life of Joseph, will soon realize that if anyone had an excuse for becoming bitter, it was Joseph. But he chose to rise above his pain and refused to let the past hold him down. Not only did Joseph grow up in a large family, uh, he was surrounded by tragedies within his family. His family had four women filled with jealousy and envy toward one another, Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. And not only that, his oldest brother committed incest with one of these women. And to top it all off, his sister Dinah was raped by one of the men from Shechem. And two of his brothers went to Shechem and not only killed the guy who did it, but they killed almost all the people in the camp. So Joseph is growing up in an environment of rape, incest, murder, envy, jealousy, bitterness, and hatred. And it seems as we go through Genesis, as we move from one patriarch to another, the family dysfunction just seems to keep getting worse. And those are just his early years. He reached an age where the anger and bitterness of his brothers turned towards him because he's the favored child. Look again at verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. And this robe is actually, it's a mark of distinction. Jacob is showing all of his sons that even though Joseph was number 11, he would get all the rights of inheritance. In other words, in Jacob's eyes, Joseph is number one. This robe set him apart. It's no wonder they hated him. They wouldn't even speak to him. And to make it worse, it seems that Joseph is an honest kid. He's 17-year-old and uh, seems to be somewhat naive. In fact, he comes off as pretty arrogant. Today he'd be called, at minimum, a tattletale. We read in verse 2 that Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. So Joseph tells on his brothers out of some sense of family duty, and then he tells them about a dream he's had, and we read in verse 5, that Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. And so in his uh, naivete, not only once, but twice, he shares dreams where he is elevated above his brothers, and he saw them... Serving him because of the position that he'll be raised to. And his brothers, however, didn't rejoice in Joseph's good fortune. For either being their father's favorite, or for dreaming these amazing dreams. They grew in bitterness until they wanted to kill him, and eventually they'll sell him into slavery. And you could think, what a mess that bitterness and jealousy has made of his life. And while Joseph is probably the one uh, who most deserves to be bitter, we'll see as we look at his life, he's the one who is the least bitter of all the brothers. The story of Joseph is by far the longest and I think the most masterful narrative in the book of Genesis, if not the whole Bible. Uh, Agnes Meyer, writing in the New York Times Book Review, said, writing about the story of Joseph, said, purely as narrative and background, there is a magnificent story here which exceeds in drama, opulence, and movement anything that Hollywood has ever dreamed. Andrew Lloyd Webber must have thought the same thing when he composed his smash musical, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And be that as it may, this is a divinely inspired account that exceeds its fictional uh, renditions with uh, depth and a theological subtlety far beyond the intent or ability of either Hollywood or Broadway. Because first of all, it's a real-life theological drama. The inspired narrative has a power that exceeds art alone. The biblical account is at once a theological narrative, and yet it's heroic literature going to instruct and challenge all of us who read it. The story of Joseph is a sweeping narrative uh, that moves between the pastures of Palestine to the 18th century B.C. courts of the Nile. And we have what appears to be a hero for the ages. The majestic character of Joseph towers over all of it, much like that of Daniel and Babylon. And be, indeed, both uh, Joseph and Daniel displays the wisdom of God. Both men interpreted the dreams of kings. Both could not be compromised. They're both jailed for their obedience, and both are made vice regents of their adopted realms. There's a lot of parallels here between Joseph and Daniel. The Joseph story also begins recording the development of the nation of Israel as it chronicles this migration of Joseph's clan to Egypt where it would grow to become a full-blown nation. And some 400 years later, Israel is going to burst fully formed out of Egypt. Which, of course, fulfills the Lord's prophecy to Abram all the way back in Genesis 15, where it said, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. And as God would have it, there's a second parallel here between Joseph and the nation of Israel. The model of Joseph's life would become prophetic of the life of the nation of Israel in general. The Old Testament scholar Alan Ross explains, just as Joseph lived in bondage in Egypt before his deliverance and supremacy over Egypt, so would the nation. Just as suffering and bondage formed tests for Joseph to see if he kept his faith and was worthy of the promise, so too the suffering and bondage of the nation was a means of discipline and preparation for the nation's future responsibilities. Moreover, the climax of the story showed that the Hebrew slave served a God who was infinitely superior to Egypt and whose wisdom outstripped the wisdom of Egypt. Ultimately and above all, the story of Joseph is about God working his will through the everyday events of life. There are no miracles here. God does not suspend his natural laws to make things happen. The story is about the hidden and sure way of God, God's hidden hand, how his hidden hand arranges everything without show or explanation or violating the nature of things. God is involved in all the events and directs all things to their appointed end. And toward the conclusion of this great narrative, when Joseph reveals himself to his brothers, he says just this thing. Genesis 45, he says, And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors so it was not you who sent me here but God. And what a God he is, because in this story we'll see he's not just a God of the extraordinary, but he's also a God of the ordinary. His boundless power is able to take both the good and evil actions of Joseph's family, of Pharaoh and his servants, and even of unknown passers-by, and use all their actions for good. So let's jump into the text and start this story of Joseph. The first thing we learn about Joseph is that he was favored by his father. He's favored by his father. That's the first blank uh, there in your outline, verses 1 through 3. And With Esau's departure from the land of promise, he has, in fact, acknowledged Jacob's right to the promised land. So Jacob settled down to stay, and in verse 2 we read, the generations of Jacob. This is the ninth occurrence in Genesis of the phrase, these are the generations of. Now, this is largely an account of the life of Joseph, just as these are the generations of Isaac was taken up with the life of Jacob. And it's here that the life of Joseph preserves and saves the generations of Jacob. Now, this epic tale begins with a teenage Joseph shepherding his father's flocks along with his brothers Dan, Nephtali, Gad, and Asher the sons of Jacob's wives, Bilhah and Zilpah. And although uh, Dan, Gad, Naphtali, and Asher are full sons, it seems they hold secondary status in Jacob's affections. We've already witnessed that there were hard feelings between Jacob and the sons of his uh, unloved wife Leah. And these are heightened by Jacob's disregard for their sister Dinah. And apparently Jacob felt even less affection for the sons of his servant wives. And it seems that these four sons of Bilhah and Zilpah knew it, and they resented it. And quite naturally, the four has little regard for young Joseph, the son of their father's favorite wife. Now, Joseph is far from perfect, notwithstanding his future greatness. And up until uh, recently, it's been customary for preachers to accord Joseph Uh, almost sinless status. Because like David, the scripture records no overt sin or criticism of him. But such reckoning, of course, is contrary to what scripture teaches us about man and the sinful nature of all people and what we know about the sin and repentance of even the most godly people. So the attempts to say that Joseph didn't do anything wrong when he brought a bad report to their father kind of ring hollow. It's especially true because what the text actually says about the incident, um, the word report, is normally used in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, in the negative sense of an untrue or partially true report. The idea that Joseph's not telling the full story. Some of you parents may have experience with this. You know, when one of your kids might say, he hit me. And you say, well, what did you do to him? <laughs> me? You know, and you sort of instantly know you're not getting the whole story here. And it's kind of like that. And here it's actually qualified by the adjective bad. It's a bad report. So it seems that Joseph is both misrepresenting and maligning his brothers. And likely it's partially true, mostly true, but not totally true. Uh, So either to exaggeration or inaccuracy. So young Joseph, in effect, becomes a tattletale. And in the eyes of the disaffected sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, this is a monstrous offense. And I'm sure when the rest of the older sons heard about what Joseph had done, that they too began to smolder with resentment. And I'm sure that his offense grew larger and bigger with every retelling of it. Now to be fair to Joseph, it really doesn't take much imagination to come up with something bad to say about them. I mean, already his brothers had been up to some pretty serious sinning. I mean, Reuben had slept with his father's wife. Simeon and Levi had slaughtered the whole tribe at Shechem because one of the men there had raped their sister. And as a result, we get this image of of Jacob's sons as rough and reckless. So it's not too far-fetched to think that their father couldn't trust them to do what they're supposed to do. And yet it does appear that he can trust Joseph. And next week we'll see that he'll send Joseph out on a mission to check up on his brothers and to see if they're doing their jobs properly. And so it's very clear that he is Jacob's favorite son. Now favoritism has become a generational sin in this family. Remember, Isaac loved Jacob. Esau more than Jacob and Rebecca loved Jacob more than Esau and Jacob loved Rachel and her children more than Leah and her children and so on it it keeps going in verse 3 we read Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons now Jacob probably can't help his feelings of favoritism because Joseph is the son of Rachel who is, is now died but never forgotten first love And Joseph had been born late in life after many years of frustration. And along with this, his freedom from all the sins of his older brothers seemed to make him a source of comfort and joy to Jacob. Nevertheless, Jacob's blatant favoritism is somewhat unconscionable. I mean, the lifelong hurt that he experienced by his own father's favoritism should have made him very wary of showing even a hint of not being even-handed with his own sons. But apparently Jacob lives in a relational fog because then we read that he made him a robe of many colors. The coat may well have been uh, covered with ornamentation in a sort of ancient near-eastern bling, uh, if you will. Um, but likely it's a long sleeve coat that reached to the wrists and the ankles and it set Joseph apart as the one who's going to receive the double portion of the inheritance. He's the first son of Rachel, whom Jacob had chosen to marry uh, before being deceived by Laban. And even more, Reuben has now been ruled out of the inheritance thing because of his immorality with Bilhah. So Joseph is is some degree getting set up by his father. Specifically uh, because he's favored by his father, it pretty much means Uh, that the story is going to go on and that he is going to be hated by his brothers. And that's the next blank there. He's hated by his brothers. Very quickly, we'll just look at that. Um, It's pretty obvious. It says, young Joseph's sudden uh, appearance in this distinctive robe uh, just ignited his brother's hatred. Verse 4, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. So Joseph's already at the bottom of the brotherly chain because of his bad report. And now he has this lordly attire, uh, someone announcing that he's the wave of the future. And it just stirs up their anger. One Hebrew scholar translated that phrase, they could not speak peacefully to him, as saying they could not abide his friendly speech. In other words, they rebuffed every attempt he made uh, to be friends with them. And it seems that his brothers just loathed his presence. the human causes are apparent. Uh, Joseph's uh, sinful distortions of his report, Jacob's sinful favoritism, the elevation of uh, Joseph just hardened uh, his son's bitter hatred for Joseph. So where is God in all of this, you may wonder? Well, at first glance, it looks like he's adding fuel to the fire. And the fuel came in in the form of two self-exalting dreams. And after each dream, we read, uh, when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. Thanks, God. There's no way of knowing what response Joseph expected from his brothers. But, you know, as you read the story, there's really only one possible response. He explains it to them. Verse 8, his brothers said to them, Are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more, third time, for his dreams and for his words. You can almost feel this ironic, sarcastic uh, disgust just throbbing here. You know, this arrogant, pompous, egotistical, self-centered jerk, megalomaniac, you know, spoiled little brat. And that's just what the teens said in Sunday school. Um actually, it wasn't just the teens. In fact, it may not have even been the teens at all. They, uh, but this refrain, so they hated him. I'm not looking at you, Karen. Um, they hated him. you know, it's repeating third times, it's this escalating hatred. And then after we get the second dream, we read verse 11, and his brothers were jealous of him. We don't hear the brothers say anything then, but their silence is ominous. Joseph's future is sealed. There's no reversing his rejection. This epic course of his life is now set. And you would think that with this level of bitterness, hatred, rejection, and jealousy, things couldn't get much worse, but you would be wrong. Because the key part of the passage comes next, And in this section, we see that Joseph gets rebuked for his dreams. He gets rebuked. And the fuel uh, comes in the form of these two self-exalting dreams. Now, the first dream uses farm or agricultural imagery. And Joseph is so full of the dream that he's just compelled to pour it out to his brothers. Verse 5, now Joseph had a dream and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, "Hear this dream that I have dreamed: behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold my sheaf arose and stood upright, and behold your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf." Don't you think that's such a great dream? And no one even the dullest of his brothers can miss the point. And Joseph certainly had to understand it, but the force of the dream plus this uh, naivete and somewhat of a self focus being the center of his father's affection you know just compels him to spontaneously share it because after all the dream is a real thing it's not just a concoction something he's making up and a dream of course foreshadows the saving act of the whole Joseph story when because he becomes a ruler in Egypt his brothers bow down to him now all dreams in the Joseph narrative come in pairs Because the pairing of dreams means the certainty of fulfillment. And later Joseph would explain that to Pharaoh in Genesis 41. He said, and the doubling of Pharaoh's dream means that the thing is fixed by God and God will shortly bring it about. So the fact that he has two dreams sort of seals the matter. God sovereignly would bring to pass uh, the fulfillment of Joseph's dreams. And this certainty may be, we don't know for sure, Uh, The reason that Joseph had the audacity to tell his brothers about it. Now the second dream goes beyond the first in its grandeur and also in the inclusion now of his parents, bowing down to him. Look at verse 9. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. You can almost hear him. Oh, great. It says, Behold, the sun, moon, and 11 stars were bowing down to me. Isn't that awesome? You know, it's just one of those, "I'm going to punch you in the face," which was also said in Sunday school. This vision is, is both symbolic and surreal. A sky bright with 11 stars representing his 11 brothers, the crowning glories of a radiant sun and moon, his father and mother, they all submit to him. And how did they bow? The spheres, uh momentarily flatten out like a setting sun, or did they blink submission in Morse code? Uh, we don't know. We have no idea. But one thing is sure, he saw them all bow to him, from Reuben to Benjamin to his father Jacob and his deceased mother Rachel. And that's too much even for his father, who clearly favors him. And he says, starting in verse 10, but when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now Jacob rebukes Joseph, but he doesn't hate him like his brothers did. Something in his soul gives him pause. Like Mary to come in the future, he ponders the meaning of what he's heard. He's not dismissive. and In some ways, Joseph is blessed to have a father who, although he was also the younger son, had become the heir of the birthright and the blessing. So what is God indicating about Joseph? Now, to anyone looking at the circumstances that Joseph goes through, God doesn't appear to be very involved here. And I think that's why secular writers can write about his life and just miss the point of uh, what's going on. It's also why our non-Christian friends can look at us and see no obvious sign of God being alive and at work in our lives. Because just like them, we struggle to get up in the morning, we get colds and we get cancers, and we grow old and we die. And circumstances over which we have no control often seem to determine the course of our life. We make good decisions and bad decisions, and sometimes God seems a million miles away. And very often, even the most spiritual among us forget to ask him and push on with their own agenda. And that's what we find people doing in this story. And that's why the story's told, because that's the way we are as human beings. Made by God, we ignore him. Provided for by God, we forget to give thanks. Loved by God, we don't return the compliment. And the point of the passage is the hand of God is everywhere, in this sweeping narrative as it orchestrates the life of the preserver, the savior of his people. And God's hidden hand has its subtle way amidst just the chaos of human sin. Now, young Joseph's bad report sets him at odds uh, with his brothers. Uh, Jacob's favoritism of Joseph further incurs uh, his son's resentment uh, of Joseph. And God's visible fingerprints are seen in the substance of Joseph's two dreams. Their origin and meaning came from God. God sovereignly sealed and ensured the rejection of Joseph. Human sin and divine revelation were made to do his good work. Walter Brueggemann an Old Testament scholar, terrific preacher, somewhat liberal. But he's written, the main character in the drama is Yahweh. Though hidden in the form of a dream, silent and not at all visible, the listener will understand that the dream is the unsettling work of Yahweh upon which everything else depends. Without the dream, there would be no Joseph and no narrative. From the perspective of the brothers, without the dream, there would be no trouble or conflict. For the father, without the dream, there would be no grief or loss. The dream sets its own course. The father, brother, dreamer, notwithstanding... And in the end, the dream prevails over the tensions of the family. In other words, the effect of the dream and its narration sets in motion a chain of events that may at first look like disasters, but as we'll discover, they're a work of grace. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, in question 11. Tom's memorizing this for ordination. In fact, You're memorizing this too, right? I should just ask you guys. But I won't, because I'm nice, and now you owe me. Um, Question 11 says, God's work of providence is his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. And as I said at the beginning, the story of Joseph is the story of a dysfunctional family. However, it's not why the story is in the Bible to help us see the extent to which sin can spoil the closest relationships, but even more so it's to show us how God can use even this level of dysfunctionality. Is that a word? It is now. Thank you. This level of dysfunctionality to further his own purposes. Because our great creator God uses his creative power to keep all creation in existence, to involve himself in all events, to direct all things to their appointed end. And that's why Joseph one day would say, at the end of the story, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And do you see what that tells us? It reveals that any of us who follow God's will live a life that will sometimes become very tangled and somewhat chaotic. And at times, complications will arise from our own sin, as with Joseph. Or complications will arise from the sin of those around us, like his brothers. Or complications will arise from the sins of those who are in the wider circles of our existence, like the slave traders who are about to show up at the end of the chapter. We live in a world caught in a web of sin, and it's constantly casting new webs. But we know that amidst all these complexities of life, the creative power of God is at work to do us good. And that's true when we're ill, and that's true when we have trouble with our children, and that's true when professional problems seem to engulf us. We have a God of providence, a God who sustains our soul in all of life, perpetually working good. And this is an important truth that you need to learn now because life is not necessarily going to get easier. In fact, the more you follow God, the more you obey God, the more complicated your life will become because the Christian life goes against the currents of this world. But take heart that God is at work to do you good and to rest your soul in that. Submit yourself to him in the great processes of life Follow him. Listen to the life of Joseph, who really is a hero for the ages, who became so much like Christ himself. You see, Joseph is a type or a model of Christ. And that lets us know why we see here the necessity of rejection. That's the last blank there in your outline. The necessity of rejection. You know, if you think about it, we don't really know why Joseph told everyone about his dreams. The Bible doesn't tell us why, and it doesn't give us any particular reason to think badly of him. But sharing the dreams does mean one thing it means that all of his family knew at the exact same time the story of these dreams, which will be fulfilled exactly as they're revealed. First, in Genesis 42 uh, 6, his brothers bow down to him in Egypt. Then they bow down twice more to honor him in Genesis 43, verse 26. They bow down again in Genesis 44, verse 14. And then finally, in Genesis 50, they throw themselves at his feet in fear for their lives. Years later, this perfect fulfillment of Joseph's dreams demonstrated to them that they had indeed heard the word of God from their brother. There's a sense in which he had to tell them because he's the voice of God to his family in that generation he wasn't yet aware of it and they are surely annoyed by it but indeed were repeatedly told they hated him even more but it's all part of god's plan and that means that when they're mocking joseph they're mocking the word of god when they reject joseph they're rejecting the word of god when our lord jesus was on the earth he too is accused by his opponents of being bold and and brash. He's accused of working with the devil at one point. He's even accused of blaspheming against God because of all the claims he made about himself. They despised him and mocked him as a Nazarene and an uneducated man. They challenged the authority by which he spoke. And it is this truth-telling that roused up the hatred of his brothers, just as Jesus' truth-telling roused up the hatred of the authorities in his day. As the story begins, God providentially brings about Joseph's rejection so that Joseph himself might ultimately be used to effect his people's salvation. God choreographs Joseph's rejection in two ways. First, by his fathers uh, favoring him over all the other brothers, and second, by giving him a vision, these dreams of his future uh, high position and being exalted. So human sin, divine revelation, produce a hatred and a rejection that paved the way for salvation. These brothers are determined to frustrate the word of God as it's revealed through Joseph's dreams. Their hatred of Joseph is ultimately a hatred of God's revelation because they're ignoring what God has told them. And how does this fit with the doctrine of God's providence? In this way, if Joseph hadn't been rejected by his brothers he could never have become their savior if Joseph is never rejected by his brothers he could never have become their savior and that's why he's a model and type of Christ Jesus had to be rejected by his own people in order to go to the cross die on their place rise again to new life and be their savior Jesus was hated and rejected and despised by men so that in becoming our Savior, we would be loved and accepted and forgiven by God. Let me close with two questions. Is your life going to be described by the bitterness and rejection that you have faced or that you have lived with or maybe even that you have poured out on others? Or will your life be described by the relationship that you have with a God who fully loves you, totally accepts you, who's completely forgiven you in His Son who loved you and gave Himself up for you? The Apostle Paul tells us that in God's providence, 2 Corinthians 5.21, for our sake He, God, made Him Christ to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And that's because it's all of grace from beginning to end. Even when it seems like everyone hates you and rejects you, remember, God is bigger than them. And that's what really matters. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you for the truth of your word, for the excitement of your word. As we begin this journey through the great story of Joseph, we pray that our study and our comprehension, our understanding of it would live up to the glory of its telling. Use your word to change how we think, how we live, and how we speak. We pray in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit,